Book of Revelation. We are that creepy church that is in the book of Revelation during Advent season. We are that church. We should be doing Advent sermons, but we're talking about the book of Revelation. That's right. It is all about Jesus. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, We're in chapter three. We're in the second to last of the seven churches. I've been talking about the seven churches. The Lord has been speaking to us through these things, and uh, it's been challenging. He's been dealing with some of our stuff, hasn't he? And I know I've been getting challenged and confronted and loved by the Lord. And as I've been speaking to you guys, you've been letting me know the same. And this is good. And it's for our growth. And whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And uh, we need to hear these things. So let's make sure that we have ears to hear it today. The church of Philadelphia today, not the one over on the East Coast, but the one in Asia Minor a couple thousand years ago. The church in Philadelphia, starting in chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, he who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not and who lie. I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have in order that no one take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's very word. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would be the center and the fullness of our hearts and our minds. This season, as we're moving toward Christmas, an expectation of your glorious first coming and hope of your wonderful second coming and also mindful of living for your glory and in your kingdom today. And so Jesus, even today, that you would right now permeate, fill our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, and our feelings. Jesus, you are good. You're sovereign. You're powerful. You're the only Savior of the world. You're the one who rules and reigns and is coming again. And we are yours, and we ask that we would just live lives that are such. And you speak to us about our lives today, Lord. We don't want to be passive Christians. We don't want to be pew potatoes. We don't want to miss it. We want to be living active, vibrant, faithful lives for your glory. Yet we confess confess that we are self-absorbed so often. Just help us, Holy Spirit, to be Jesus-absorbed. And so speak to us through your word. Please anoint me to teach and preach in a way that's helpful for this family and brings glory to your name. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, in addressing the seven churches, Jesus has been self-introducing himself in glorious ways. And, and, and all of those uh, churches that we've looked at so far, he's drawn that imagery from that vision that John had of him in the first chapter of Jesus in glory. You'll remember clothed in white with a golden sash and the hair like wool and the eyes like fire and the feet like bronze and the sword coming from his mouth. That glorious vision of Jesus and all of his deity and power and resurrected sort of exaltation. But today, when he self-introduces to the church of Philadelphia, he doesn't draw his imagery from that vision. He just general introduction pertaining to his deity and his sovereignty with some Old Testament imagery. He calls himself the Holy One. And all the listeners knew that the God of Israel was the one true holy God. And Christ is identifying himself as the one true holy God here. He says, I am the Holy One. It speaks of his uniqueness. Holiness speaks of otherness, that it's not mundane, it's not profane, it's not usual, it's not earthly, it's holy, it's other, it's extravagant, it's glorious, it's wonderful. He's holy. There's none other who is like him. Speaks of his uniqueness. And it speaks of his purity and his moral purity. He's not corrupt like the gods of the ages were, like the Greek and the Roman pantheons were with all their sagas and dramas and all these things. He's truly a holy God who is altogether righteous in all that he does and all that he says and has ever done and has ever said. Christ is holy and right and righteous and pure. And he is true. He says, I am the holy one and I am the true one. And there's a couple different Greek words for true. And one simply means not false. And that's not the word he uses here, though that's true. He's certainly not false. He uses a Greek word for true that means real, genuine. Jesus has set himself apart from all the so-called gods of the world. I'm holy, I'm other, I'm right, I'm righteous, and I'm real, I'm genuine. Not in the sense that like, oh yeah, I met that guy the other day. Such a genuine guy. He's so sweet and down to earth. Not in that sense. But in the sense of his trueness. That Christ actually lives. He's not far off. He's present. Our faith is a genuine faith. Our Savior is a genuine Savior. You know, we are often, as Christians, practical atheists and Christians by profession only. We say that we believe in Jesus and that we belong to him and we worship him, but we often live most of our lives as though he weren't real and genuine and true, as though he weren't near and present and with, as though he were far off. We live within anything sort of goes. I'm the king, I'm the master of my own reality sort of mentality. And Jesus is saying, wait a minute, I'm holy, I'm right and I'm righteous. And I'm true, I'm real and I'm genuine, I'm present, I'm with. He's holy, he's ruling and reigning and over, but he's real, he's imminent or or present within. He's not far off. And he is He self-introduces himself this way here, in control. He says of himself in that verse, 
I have the key of David who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens. Keys in scripture, we speak of authority and sovereignty. He says, I have the key of David. David was that great king of Israel. And anytime we invoke the idea of David afterward, it's speaking of the king who would sit on his throne, the Messiah that was to come. And this is sovereign messianic language, the key of David. I have the authority as the everlasting king of Israel, the Messiah who was expected, who was and is, and who is to come. And there was some prefigurement taking place in this phrase. Back in Isaiah chapter 22, King Hezekiah had a keeper of his palace whose name was Eliakim. And King Hezekiah said to you, I'm going to entrust you the the key of David. You'll oversee anyone that comes into the royal palace and the royal presence. And Eliakim was expected to be a faithful steward, keeping out the wicked, allowing access to the righteous. And that became a prefigure, a foreshadow of Jesus, who is telling us here, holds the keys to eternity. Jesus here is invoking that idea that he spoke of in John chapter 14, uh, verse six, where he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the father except through me. You know, this is a glorious truth and this is a hard truth for our world to hear. But Jesus claims absolute exclusivity. Absolute exclusivity. That's why it's not just the holidays. That's why it's not just a merry season. It's Christmas, Christmas. It's not about anything. It's about one thing. It's about Jesus. Jesus claims absolute exclusivity. He says, I hold the keys of David. I open the doors to eternal life and no one can do anything about it. And I shut them and no one can do anything about it. Jesus claimed to be the only unique son of God, the only savior of the world. And he proved it by his resurrection from the dead. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the father but through me. I have the keys of David. I'm the Messiah. In chapter one, he said, I hold the keys of death and the grave. He's absolutely in control. And Jesus is the only way to be forgiven of our sins and to have and experience eternal life and to go to heaven. We can be saved by no other name, by no one other than Jesus Christ. So it's not happy holidays, it's Merry Christ Mass. More Jesus in Spanish. It's not about anything. It's about one thing. It's about Jesus Christ who claimed absolute exclusivity. And he's speaking that into a culture that was a pluralistic culture. A culture that had many competing truth claims. A culture in which they believed there were lots of ways to the afterlife, to be saved, to achieve immorality. It was a culture very much like our own. Philadelphia wasn't that different from Carpinteria or Ventura. Lots of beliefs. Lots of so-called saviors. And Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm the only one. And listen to me, brothers and sisters. We live in a culture where that message is not popular. And I am telling you that scripture makes it clear. And it's evidential 
and the tone and the tenor and the spirit of the age that this message will become less and less popular as the days progress. But stick to the story. Jesus is the only unique son of God and the only savior of the world, the only one who died on a cross in our place to pay the price for our sins and rose from the dead that we might have the forgiveness of sins and new life. And because Christ is holy and true and real and genuine and sovereign and powerful and in control, we need not be fearful. We need not be ashamed. We need not cringe or cower or draw back from proclaiming that message. That is the message that this world needs to hear. This is the season where we own the voice and culture. It is Christmas. It is about Jesus. He alone holds the keys. The book of Romans chapter five says about Jesus. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith in him, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So Jesus was a fulfillment of that guy Eliakim in Isaiah chapter 22 who was the keeper of the keys to the palace of the king. Jesus is the one who brings us into the loving, healing, wonderful, redeeming, glorious, eternal presence of the Father. He's sovereign over that. He's sovereign over salvation. Most of us know that. You're getting a little preachy, Pastor Britt. Well, let me bring it down to where we're at. It's not only that Jesus holds the keys in the way and is the way to salvation. But Christian, Jesus also holds the keys and is sovereign over the way and the ways of our lives. And this is what this text begins to get at in the next verse where he says, I know your deeds and I have put before you an open door that no one can shut. Jesus not only holds the keys and is the way to salvation, he holds the keys and the way and the ways of our lives. He's sovereign over our lives. And he's meant to be king and Lord over our lives. And we're called to submit to him. We are, after all, as Christians, followers of Jesus. And we're called to follow him as he directs our path. I want to read for you an excerpt from, an excerpt from Psalm 139. I'll read it from the New Living Translation. I, I like the Psalms in the New Living Translation. And you can open up there if you want. I'll just read the first few verses or I'll just read it. It's nice to listen to. Just sort of a backdrop about God's sovereign presence and hand in our lives. The psalmist writes, O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and you follow me. You place your hand of blessing upon my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. 
If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there, your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night. But even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. That's good news, by the way. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know that. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They can't even be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake... You are still with me. Isn't that beautiful? The expression of God's sovereign presence and work and oversight in our lives. God is sovereign. You are his Christian. He cares infinitely and intimately about your life. Now let's put a little bit of an edge on it. And he means that your life will be used for his glory. He cares about all the drama, all the hard places, all the heartache, all the failures, all the successes, all the wants, all the desires, all those things he knows about him and he cares about him. He's present, he's working and he's conforming us to the image of Christ by his spirit and through his holy word. But he means that our lives would count for his glory. If we get anything from that text that we just read, it's that our lives are not our own. We are not the captains of our own destiny. We are not the sovereigns over our lives. We have a sovereign. We have a captain. We have a king. And he means that. Our lives would bring him glory. He intends that. He purposes that. What that means that is contrary to popular belief, your life is not meaningless. You're not the result of just an accident. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. God has intentions and plans and purposes for your life, and he means that. Your life would be used for his glory. He means that. He intends that. And that's a wonderful thing. That's not meant to be a slight. That's not meant to be a downer. That's not meant to be a bummer. That's not meant to be a burden. That's meant to be a glorious thing. Imagine that you lived under the rain. Okay, well, you remember the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy? You don't remember that? Just humor for me for a moment. The end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And, and the battle has been won. And the new king is being crowned. What's his name again, Bo? 
Aragorn, thank you. Aragorn is being crowned again. And there's this, he's, he's the king who has returned. And there's this celebration and all of Gondor is gathered there. And all of Middle Earth is rejoicing. And Aragorn is being crowned. And there in the midst of the crowd stands these three silly little hobbits. And the king expresses to them their importance in the place of his kingdom. There's all this glory. There's all this splendor. He's the king. But he stoops to these three little hobbits and affirms their place and importance to his kingdom. And so it is with us. King Jesus is a glorious king. And one day, even the trees will clap their hands at the coming of the king. And all the earth will rejoice. And you, dear sister, you, dear brother, have a place of importance and value in his kingdom. Your life is not meaningless. Your life is not subject to the whims of culture or the ways of circumstance. You have a sovereign, loving king, and he means that your life would bring him glory. And this is what he's saying to the church in Philadelphia in verse eight. He says, I know your deeds. I know what you're doing. And I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. This is speaking of an opportunity. He's saying to the church in Philadelphia, I have put before you an opportunity to be a witness, to serve me, for your lives to count for my glory. And Philadelphia was an interesting place for that to happen. Philadelphia was situated where three nations came together. They had a common border there, Mycia, Lydia, and Phrygia. And because of that, it was known as the gateway to the east. And it commanded one of the most important roads in all the known world, the one that went from Europe to the east. And the city was built some 300 years or so before this letter was written by the Greeks who were ruling the world at that time to be a missionary city. What do you mean the Greeks were missionaries? Not missionary in the way that we think. It was meant to be a missionary city for Greek culture, for Hellenism. Part of the explicit plan of the Greeks when they ruled the world was that they would Hellenize, Greekize, if you will, the world. Why is the New Testament written in Greek? Because the Greeks ruled the world and that became the language of the world. It was a big deal. And Philadelphia was meant to be a missionary city because it was strategic. It was a gateway to the east. And so from there, the good news of the Greek kingdom could travel and people could be transformed and be more like Greeks. And Jesus says, I have a different plan for a different sort of missionary endeavor. I have placed you, Philadelphian Christians, strategically in this city, indeed to be missionaries of the good news of a different great kingdom so that people could be transformed in a different way. You see, they were put in a strategic place. And Jesus says, I opened the door for you. And apparently they were doing a good job. This is only the second church about which Jesus has nothing negative to say. 
He had nothing to negative to say about the suffering church, and he has nothing negative to say about this church, which is on mission. I know your deeds. I've opened a door for you. And they were being faithful witnesses. They had a strategic opportunity there in Philadelphia because of where they were. And what I want us to be asking ourselves now in light of that is, what open door has God placed before us? Perhaps as a church, but as individuals too. Because we are the church on mission gathered and we're the church on mission when we're scattered. What open door has God put in your life? Too often the default Christian answer is, oh, I don't know. I don't think there is one. Philadelphia was so lucky. They had this amazing opportunity being at the gateway of the east and the intersection of three nations. And oh, they had such a great opportunity. I don't really have one. That's not true. If you're living and you're breathing still, God has set before you an opportunity. Why? We're precious in his kingdom. He's sovereign over your life. Your life is not meant to be a waste. Your life is meant to be bring him glory. And so wherever you are, whatever you do, with whom you know already, Christ has purposes and open doors for you there. The sad truth is that we often fail to recognize that and to see them. Or we just refuse to because we're so busy opening our own doors. And so much of our life endeavors, how can I open the door of opportunity here? How can I open the door of financial security here? How can I open the door of influence there? How can I open the door to this relationship here? That's part of life, perhaps. But what about the doors? God, your king, the lover of your soul, has opened for you now. You say, oh, I'm, I'm just not sure what those might be. Well, well, well think about your lives. Is there any brokenness around you? Open door to minister the love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is there anybody that you know that may not be a Christian? Well, I'm not sure about so-and-so. Ask them. Open door to tell the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's opportunity all around us. God sees to it. The theology of biblical mission is that God is a missionary God who is always on mission in our world, around us, and intends to be on mission through us. And whatever's going on in your family, in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood, with your friends, Christ is already present and intending to do something. Intending to move. Intending for his kingdom and his reign and his love and his mercy and his forgiveness to go forth. But he intends to use us. This is the way that he does it. He uses hobbits. (laughs) Little people. He said to the church in Philadelphia, I've opened up a door for you because you only have a little strength. That's the idea in the Greek. He's saying, I opened up a door for you 
to be used in my kingdom for my purposes because you only have a little strength. You don't have much to bring to the table, but what you have to bring isn't the point. What Jesus is up to is the point. Remember the loaves and the fishes? Well, I've got these couple things. And Jesus takes them and lifts them to heaven and blesses them and multiplies and feeds the multitude. What if we just began to bring ourselves with our brokenness, our resources with their messiness, our mouths with their salt water, whatever it is, what if we just begin to bring ourselves to Jesus and just say, Jesus, I'm willing to be used by you in my family, in my workplace, in my school, in my city, in the market. Don't we believe that Jesus is up to something there? Or are we again practical atheists, Christians by profession only, but practically living out the idea of a God who's absent? No, brothers and sisters. We believe in a God who is present, in a God who cares, in a God who is sovereign. And the text is telling us that God has an open door. We only have little strength, but that's okay. God's not looking for big people. He's just looking for people. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians. Turn there if you like. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, a familiar passage. I've opened up a door for you. You only have a little strength. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Paul writes to the church in Corinth and says, Think about or consider your calling, brethren. God's calling on their lives. That there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are, and the base, which are strong, excuse me, and the base things of the world, and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. In other words, pause right there. Every Christian is meant to be used by God, but no Christian could say, God use me because of my great giftedness or my great talents or my great influence or my great power or my great importance or my know-how. That's never the point. God has opened up a door for you in his sovereignty. You have a little strength. But walk through the door. Let the power be God's. Verse 30, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That just as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Chapter two, verse one. Paul, now look what he says about himself. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, For I determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. What is he saying there? He's saying, listen, I'm I'm not a fancy orator. I didn't come to you with fancy arguments. I made a decision. I'm just going to talk about Jesus. But he made the decision. I determined to know nothing except for Christ and him crucified. He made a decision. 
Remember what we prayed in the beginning? Remember what we said in the beginning? All of life is meant to be about Christ. Paul says, I I don't have fancy words. I'm not a fancy guy. I'm just going to talk about Jesus. And he says, I'm not very strong. Verse 3, he says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. It was hard for Paul like it's hard for us. Weakness and fear and trembling. It was hard for Paul like it was hard for us, but he determined to be used by Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse four, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words and wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, I've put you in a unique space, an opportune place. I've opened up a door for you. You only have a little strength. It's not about you and your strength. It's about me and my strength who will use you by my Holy Spirit for the gospel to go forth in the world. You have an opportunity. And every single Christian is gifted by Christ for ministry. We sometimes think, well, I don't have any gifts, and it's because you're expecting your gift to look like their gift. But the scriptures say that he gifts us all differently, very differently. You have a space in which you've been placed by Christ, and you have a gift which has been entrusted to you by Christ. And you're to use it. Well, how do I use it? Give me a pulpit. Let me preach. How do I use it? Sometimes it's hard. I'm not going to give you the pulpit. I'll just tell you right now. Sometimes it's hard. But the scriptures make it clear what we ought to do. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. Each one has received a special gift. Use it, therefore, in the serving of one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You say, well, you're telling me, Pastor Britt, that God wants to use me for his glory. I don't know where to start. Start by serving somebody. Well, who do I serve? Give me a position in the church. Show me what to do. Man, you're really going to make it complicated. Whoever you see that's in need, God has opened up a door for you there. Serve them. Okay, but I don't, I don't, know, I, I don't know what gift I have. Take a whack at it and you'll figure it out real quick. <laughs> what are their needs? Endeavor to meet them. You may discover, oh, geez, not my gift. Let me go get Guy. He'll do that. Or you may discover, oh, I'm gifted here. I can supply. I have the gift of mercy. Or I have the gift of helps. Or I have the gift of provision. Or the gift of administration. Or the gift of faith. Or the gift of healing. Or the gift of miracles. Or whatever it might be. But if you're not willing to step out and serve somebody, you will never know and you'll forever be a pew potato. That's not Christ's place for you in his kingdom on the sidelines. That's, that's, not, that's not what it's about. I've opened up a door for you. You have a little strength, but I've given you the Holy Spirit and I've given you gifts. Don't complicate it. Begin to serve whoever is around you that's in need. Don't try to be the savior. You're not Jesus. They can only be saved by Jesus. They can only be healed by Jesus. They can only be restored and redeemed and set free by Jesus. But we're stewards of God's judgment. 
Not what it says. We are stewards of God's grace. Please look at the text, read the text, all eyes on the text. Use it, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You know what a steward is? Excuse me. A steward is someone who, demon, or excuse me, um, uh, help me, Brother Bo, distributes, thank you, distributes resources. That's what a steward is. They don't own it. They distribute it. We are stewards of God's grace. We're to be distributing God's grace. His love, his mercy, his kindness, his favor, his gentleness, wherever it's needed. We just distribute it. It's not our resource, it's God's. He's the God of grace. We become conduits. We become stewards. We become participants in. That's a glorious hope of life in the kingdom. Again, it doesn't say of God's judgment. Oh, you're, we're judgmental enough but of his grace. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. It's not our words, it's God's word. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So if Jesus will supply the strength, the words, the gifting, the resourcing, and he opens up doors in our lives, the only question is then, will we walk through them? You know, and that's part of the journey. Part of the journey is recognizing the doors, right? Seeing it. God, help me to see as you see Help me to see the needs around me. Help me to see the opportunities and possibilities. And then, and then walking through it. You know, sometimes they're as simple as a cool cup of water. Sometimes they're as profound as reorienting your entire life to move to a different country, to learn the language and the culture of a people that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they might hear it first from your lips. But that's a glorious adventure of the kingdom. And there is an opportunity in all of our lives. The question is, will we walk through it? And you know, our willingness to walk through those doors and to serve and to give of ourselves in that way makes it, makes it pretty clear who or what we're living for pretty quickly. I got to tell you, there's some doors of opportunity God has opened before me in my life that I didn't walk through because I was living for myself. And they would have cost too much. They would have been too difficult. They would have taken too much time away from surfing. Whatever it is, I've I've missed some doors in my life. There's just times where I, I want to be the king. I want to be in control. I want to do what I want to do. God, have mercy on us. There's a more wonderful way to live. There's a more wonderful way to live. Walking through those doors. You say, well, but the opposition is so great. I, I would do that, but it's not, it's not going to be popular. I would talk about Jesus more in my workplace, but my boss would be upset. And I would bring him up at the Lucky Llama, but I don't know that people want to hear it. It's true. People are offended by Jesus and Christianity. It's true. By the exclusivity of it, people are offended by that. 
When you tell them there's no way for you to be saved except through Jesus Christ, that is radically offensive. There's not another message. They're offended by the exclusivity of it, and they're offended by the holiness of Christ. One of the things, if you study the early church, that was most offensive about the church was not just the proclamation that Christ was Lord, not Caesar, but it was their refusal to engage in sexual immorality. That was one of the things that was most offensive about the early church because they begin to show forth the holiness of Christ and the way that they lived. Christianity is offensive when truly proclaimed and truly lived in its exclusivity and in its morals. And it will draw opposition. And it drew opposition for the church in Philadelphia. And so often in the first century, the opposition was not only from the Roman government, but it was from Jewish authorities and powers. We've talked about that already when we talked about the church in Ephesus. And in verse 9, Jesus says, oh, back to the book of Revelation. In verse 9, Jesus says, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and to bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. That bow down at your feet thing and know that I have loved you, that's just vindication language. I don't think he's talking about an actual bowing down. He's not talking about military conquest. That's just vindication language. That at some point, the exclusivity and the holiness of it all will be shown to be right. At some point, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. There will be vindication. That's why the word to the churches is always, hold on, persevere, stay the course. There will be vindication. Every eye will see when Christ returns to establish his kingdom. We talked about this in the church of Ephesus, but synagogue of Satan is provocative sort of language. It's not an anti-Semitic thing. It's not an anti-Jewish thing. And it's not an overall statement about synagogues or Jews or the Jewish religion. He's addressing here one or two people or both. Christians who couldn't handle the heat and so converted to Judaism to get away from governmental oppression because Judaism was a a governmentally excused religion from Caesar worship. So if they were persecuted in the church, they could convert to Judaism and be safe in the synagogue. Those who say they are Jews and are not, maybe who he's referring to, or these are simply Jews who were persecuting Christians and Jesus wasn't okay with it. But we have different enemies today. We have different opposition. We don't have to worry about that sort of thing, but there is different opposition for us. And there will one day be vindication. Christ will be seen by all and Christ will set all things right. But in the meantime, the call is to persevere. Verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance. They didn't give in. They didn't give up. They didn't cheese out. It wasn't too much. They stayed the course. Verse 11, the urgency of it. I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have in order that no one take your crown. The call to persevere in the face of opposition. Listen to what Paul said to Timothy, some of his dying words in 2 Timothy chapter 4. 
I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. You know what I mean to eagerly look forward to his appearing? It's not so much escapism as it is tenacious engagement and mission. It says, the mission is hard. The kingdom goes forth with some difficulty, but the king is coming again. So I'm going to stay the course because I look forward to the day of vindication, the day of his coming, his ruling and his reigning. It's not escapism. It's tenacious perseverance in the face of opposition. It's not going to get easier. If I'm reading culture right and I'm reading my Bible right, it's not going to get easier to be a faithful Christian in the days to come. That's why we have to be so convinced of the glory and the wonder and the power and the beauty and the supremacy of Jesus that no one else's opinion holds sway on our life. So secure in our identity in him and his love and his gospel that nothing else shapes our thoughts, attitude, emotions, and actions like his love and his sovereignty and his goodness. That's a high call, but that is the wonderful call of Christianity. Difficult times are coming. Maybe we'll escape it, maybe we won't. I'm not totally sure. In verse 10, he says, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell upon the earth. This is a clear reference to the tribulation period. He says, I will keep you from it. This is obviously a promise. It's bigger than just the church in Philadelphia. It has to do with the church in general through all the ages. Some sort of promise to keep us through the tribulation. It may be that it's a pre-tribulation rapture. That we meet the Lord in the clouds and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And that we're spared that time of tribulation, which is both the wrath of God and the wrath of Satan unleashed on the world. Others see it as him protecting us in that time from the wrath of Satan. Any way that you view it, Jesus is saying to this church, you're pretty weak. But you're doing well. And I've opened up a door for you. Stick with it. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't give up. Persevere. I'll be with you. And in some way, I will keep you through the most difficult period of time the world will ever know. I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. You've already earned a crown, verse 11. So stay the course that you don't lose the crown. Stay the course. Be like the Apostle Paul. Put that passage back up again, please, Dan. Thank you. Be like the Apostle Paul. Be, come to the end and be able to say, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I remained faithful. All by grace, all by the enabling power of his Holy Spirit, But brothers and sisters, I don't want to get to the end and say, I didn't keep fighting the fight. I didn't finish the race. I cheesed out. I took a detour. I bailed out. I pooped out. 
I'm unfaithful. I don't want to say that. And that's not what Christ has for us. Within your life, there's a door of opportunity in which and through which he means to be glorified. It's not about your gifts, talents, or strengths. He supplies, he strengthens, he empowers by his spirit. He leads, he guides, he's sovereign. The call on us is simply to obey. If Paul hadn't obeyed, he could never say, I fought the fight. I finished the race. I've remained faithful. I'm looking forward to the prize on that day. In the end, guys, sticking with Jesus is going to be worth it. You know, this church has been around for 11 years now. And my wife and I have been doing vocational ministry for 17 years now. And we've seen in 17 years thousands of people who have decided not to stick with Jesus. Thousands. And there have been days in my life where I didn't want to stick with Jesus. There's been some real dark times. There's been some great, great cost to follow Christ. But I am convinced that in the end, it will be worth sticking with and obeying Jesus. Verse 12, he says, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. And he'll never go out from it anymore. I'll write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. This is our destiny. This is what Christ has for us. Give yourselves fully to his work. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord, for these great and glorious promises and this clear call. Thank you for the doors that you've opened in our lives, Lord. Help us to see them. Help us to walk through them in obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit with the strength you supply. Help us, Lord, to see you as Lord and King of our lives. And I, I, I want help, Lord, to surrender my, my areas of selfishness and refusal to walk through certain doors because of what they may cost or the discomfort they would bring or the time they would involve. Thank you for your grace and forgiveness in those areas. But we just want to be men and women who live for the glory of Jesus because, Jesus, you're worthy of it. You're worthy of all glory. Help us not to love temporal things too much in light of your ultimate eternal worth. Give us the right view of eternal places and positions and things and help us to be fully consumed with you and your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.